to the Marathon Medic podcast. I'm your host, Amy Bolsh, a doctor and running coach with an interest in sport and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are all about physical activity, exercise and health, and today I'm joined by Reenie McGregor. Reenie is a sports dietitian who specialises in eating disorders, the female athlete and athlete performance. Reenie is also a best-selling author in nutrition, and her latest book, More Fuel You, takes a holistic approach to understanding the body and provides a guide for optimising nutrition for training and performance. On this podcast episode, we're discussing low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport, or REDS. We'll also touch on fueling for female athletes and how nutritional needs might change through the menstrual cycle. Hi, Rini. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your your busy day to chat with me about a very important topic. Um, I imagine everyone listening knows exactly who you are, but would you mind just introducing yourself, please? Yeah, sure. My name's Rini. Um, I am a sports dietitian and eating disorder specialist, um, author, and I guess I'll put ultra runner in there because I think I can say that now legitimately. <laughs> Absolutely. So recently, you just um, I, I guess maybe just. Two weeks ago, you finished a huge challenge of 250 kilometers in five days. Would you mind just telling everyone a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, we did actually over 50K a day for the first four days. So we did less on day five. But, um, yeah, it was fundamentally meant to be 250K over five days. And um, we were raising money for charity. So we're raising money for a charity called Big Moose, um, which provides um therapy to people who can't either access it through the nhs because obviously we're just so under-resourced or can't uh, afford it um financially so they pay for a certain number of sessions to help people on their way and um yeah just navigate their mental health which is fantastic how are you recovering in the weeks after yeah i feel good i i had no idea like i i do a lot of running and i do do long distance but generally speaking in the last well pre-covid was the last time I did like a multi-day thing so up until so since then I've I've done like longer distances like 50k 70k in a day but then you just that's it you're done and you recover and and you're done so I had no idea how long it would take to recover or feel like running or, or I, I I couldn't have told you um but I think I mean obviously I'm I tend to be quite responsible and sensible because fundamentally I want to be able to run you know for as long as I can without getting injured so I had already already sort of said I'd probably give myself two weeks and then just assess where I'm at and the first week was yeah I was fine I mean I'll be honest I felt fine physically I had no issues whatsoever I didn't even really have DOMS which I was quite surprised about um but I was just inherently tired like I would that first week I was basically going to bed at nine o'clock every night I was so shattered and just eating for England um so that was kind of week one week two yeah I think week two I felt a little bit more tired in the beginning of the week than I had actually on week one. Um, but then I'd had a really, really crazy work schedule. Um, my period was due, like all those things that kind of contribute to you feeling exhausted. Um, but I didn't, so I didn't do any running the first week at all. I didn't even really want to do anything, which is very unlike me, but I like even walking the dogs, I was like, oh God, I don't really want to do this. I did obviously, but I, I didn't really want to do anything. And then last week, 
I definitely I went out for a couple of little jogs with the dogs so like four or five miles so today was the first day I went out for like a proper run and um, yeah I feel okay so we'll see I'm not gonna go mad but um, I feel good and it was it's interesting there's so much I learned from the experience that um, obviously I can use in practice in terms of my practice in my work but also just from my own learning for myself in terms of my ability and what my body can do and I don't know I, I you probably think this as, as a as a medic I w- kind of always knew this but really after that 250 it's really apparent to me that the body is just this amazing piece of engineering and I want to call it a piece of engineering I don't want to call it a machine because I don't think machine does it justice whereas engineering gives it a bit more kudos which is what it deserves I do find that's why I have so much interest in endurance sports and ultras particularly because what people manage to do is just just feels impossible so so often and often when you start these things you just have no idea how capable you are Um, but I'm glad you're feeling feeling better Uh, and it seems like you've covered quite quickly really in in the grand scheme of things I'm pleased I am really pleased and I I I don't think I don't know if I could tell you why (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested to know with your background in as a sports dietitian, do you go into these uh, events and kind of carefully plan all your nutrition and does it go to plan? Do you come out the other side thinking actually that's the one area where I did everything as I would kind of tell one of my athletes to do or someone that was sat in the clinic? Or do you afterwards think actually I didn't, even though I know all the theory kind of on race day or, you know, day five into, into this challenge, do, do you kind of slip up and, and look back and think, actually, that's not quite how I would have done that? It's a really good question. I would say that probably when I first started out in ultras, I didn't always practice what I preached. But subsequently, I've learned from every ultra I've done. And definitely in the last two years, I've addressed it a bit more like an athlete. Um, and so always try and ensure that I'm taking carbs on as quickly as possible. Um, and I've thought about how do I do that practically? Because I think like that's something a lot of athletes don't think about in in terms of we all know that we should be getting a certain amount of carbs per hour, but actually the formula of that is quite important. So I definitely do better with liquid rather than food. So when I'm doing one day ultras, definitely I rely on drinks more than I do on food. I definitely eat, but I would say I get majority of my carbs through drinking because then I can hydrate and get the electrolytes right at the same time. And also majority of the types of races I do tend to be quite technical. So I'll often be carrying poles or have quite a big pack on or it's not always easy to stop and eat. And and if you're doing a lot of up and down, again, it's quite difficult to eat while you're climbing, even though that's when people say, why don't you eat when you're climbing? Well, it's actually quite difficult to climb a hill and eat at the same time. So that's where I find drinking is really useful for me because I can get the energy in, can keep taking sips and it's almost like this drip, drip feed. And it's worked really, really well for me. But when it came to the 250, I was so hungry by day three that that was not enough. And it was, it was really fascinating just how hungry I was. And so we were really lucky we had this amazing support crew because there was there was actually 15 of us that did it, it all to raise money for this charity and they we had this amazing support crew back at camp and the way the course was created as we did basically 18k loops so we kept coming back to camp 
um, which meant we could then top up on liquid and, and food. And the support crew every day created something different. So one day it was flapjacks, the next day it was like salted potatoes, another day it was gingerbread and you know another day it was sandwiches and and things so what I found was that as the the days went on I actually relied on solid fuel a lot more which was which was really good to know in in that again it was a useful exercise for me to to go through but I was definitely trying to hit the targets that I would normally suggest people hit so you know around that sort of 60 to 90 grams of carbs an hour I've worked out for me again over the past sort of five years that around 50 to 60 is good for me. Um, if I go too much above that, I do tend to get a bit more uh, stomach issues. And if I go below that, I have no energy. So it's again, like you learn from everything you do. And I, so I definitely try and practice what I preach. Um, and I often do ultras as a way of research as well, because I think that's a really good way of being very hands-on. Um, and also even just crewing for people is a really good way of really understanding and responding to what they need in that moment. Um, and, and one of the things that I am I often advise, and again, definitely did this time, was to have quite a lot of backup. Because I know that although you might think you're going to have a gel or you're going to have peanut M&Ms or whatever, actually, when you're there in that moment, depending on the environment and depending on what's going on for you, you might not actually feel like that. So it was really good because I always had something different in my pack in case I was like, yeah, I don't feel like the peanut M&Ms today. I think I'm going to have a ginger nut. You know, it was that kind of that kind of thing. So, and it's something I always recommend people is to have that contingency plan just in case. Yeah, that was something I was actually going to, to pick up on, the fact that you can plan as much as you like, but you can't always predict what you're going to feel like. And there's no way you can replicate the kind of challenge you just did and know how you're going to feel on day five and what food you're going to want. So... So having some choice is definitely a good idea. Yeah. Um, you've chosen to specialise in kind of uh, eating disorders in sport, uh, red S and, and female athletes in particular. What what kind of drew you to that side of um, being a sports dietitian? And I guess being a sports dietitian rather than all the other types of dietitians out there as well. Yeah, I mean, so I started life as a clinical dietitian and I worked in the NHS for eight years. And as you'll know, like, it's very similar to kind of the rotations that you do as a junior doctor moving forward. So it was the same with when you become a newly qualified dietitian. It used to be called basic grade. It's now like a band five. You start and you basically do everything and you're just a general dog's body and you get an experience in, in all different specialities. And then as you move through sort of every 18 months or so, you rotate and do much more specialized areas. Um, and my last rotation was in pediatrics and then from there I was I was seconded I guess into a role to do kind of um adolescent and and I suppose pediatric eating disorders which I ended up doing for quite a long time so I had this background in eating disorders and and sort of clinical dietetics anyway but I I don't know I just got a little bit frustrated with not being able to be the practitioner I wanted to be you know the funding model in the UK and the NHS doesn't sit very comfortably with me in that people can only access what is available to them depending on their postcode rather than what they actually need. And those things just frustrated me, I guess. And I I decided that it was time to leave the NHS. But equally, at the same time, I was having a bit of a, what do I really want to do? You know, what I obviously could have carried on just being a private dietitian, but I was like, what do I want to do? And 
I took actually a bit of time out. I was still seeing some clients privately just to keep my registration up, but I took a bit of time out and actually did uh, my personal trainer qualifications because I thought that's where I wanted to go. Did that for a year and then realized that I missed using my skill set and my knowledge. Um, but the personal trainer course had kind of got me interested in sport. I mean, I've always been sporty, but just interested in working in that particular area. So at that point, I then went on to do a postgrad in applied sports nutrition. So this was on top of my, I'd already done a biochemistry degree and a dietetics degree, and then I did the applied sports nutrition. Um, And so that's kind of what got me into sports nutrition. But then my first job was working with the rhythmic gymnastics team that went to London 2012. Um, And again, they were looking for somebody who had had a background in sports performance, but also could bring a clinical aspect to it because they were worried about eating disorders. That was my first job, which um, went really, really well. And then from then on in, I was fundamentally just, I didn't really struggle to get more work. Um, The work sort of kept on coming, opportunities kept coming, arising, and I've worked in so many different areas. But the more sports I worked in, the more I realized there was a problem in sport. And there was this like darker side to sport that was not often spoken about. But equally, the more I worked in it, the more I could see the comparisons and the similarities with anorexia that I'd seen on the wards, particularly in the blood tests of these athletes. And I was like, hang on a minute, like, why is nobody joining this up? So up until obviously 2016, we only used to know the term female athlete triad, which was obviously very much looking at the female athlete, low energy availability, affecting menstruation, which then impacted bone health. And there was this kind of real strong link between these three areas. And that was what was constantly spoken about. But then I was looking at the working with some of these athletes with female athlete triad and going, yeah, but their white cell count's also low and their cholesterol's high because their estrogen's low. And it was really like, and it was all the things that I'd seen in the NHS. And I was then seeing it in this area of sports nutrition. I was like, I need to do something with this. Like I've got to do something. And then it wasn't down to me just to say, <laughs> but then we got the, the kind of IOC consensus group brought together the, the REDS consensus paper, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. And fundamentally, we're basically saying the same thing. This is not just about bone health and menstruation. This is actually about all biological function and all biological processes and it affects men and women so we need to do a bit more research um so that was kind of like almost music to my ears because it's like okay well I've known about this for a long long time and it gave me the opportunity to um bridge that gap between clinical and sports performance because nobody really was doing that and it was it was very much my skill set so I was able to then start helping lots and lots of athletes that were falling into this place of red s and red s is really interesting because it's it's not straightforward there are two types of red s there's like unintentional red s or accidental red s where someone just falls into it completely by chance they just don't appreciate how much fuel they need in order to support their training and support their biological function and they often present because they're not performing very well or they're not adapting from their training or they're getting multiple injuries. And usually within a few months of kind of 
helping them with nutritional interventions and modifying training load, you can get them back on track and, and there's no issues, there's no problems at all. But then a big part of REDS is this intentional REDS um, where there's a conscious decision to reduce energy intake and or increase training load. And fundamentally, we're talking about disordered eating and eating disorders. And also, this was an area that I had so much knowledge in that I've been able to help so many people, not just overcome it, but really understand the why. Like, why do these behaviours develop? What is this about? Um, to answer your question, there's there's lots of reasons why I've, I want to work in this area. One is I find it really fascinating, and it's an area that there's we're constantly learning more. And fundamentally, it's not just physiological. There's a lot of psychological and endocrinological issues, which are only starting to be pulled together even now. Like even now, there's still, we're looking and researching. But also, particularly females, because we know that there's so poor research in females generally, whether it comes health or sports performance, you know, often sports science studies are done on well-trained white males of a certain age, usually university age, which is not particularly useful because majority of the population isn't that. And I feel quite strongly about that, that, you know, all the information we've got about sports nutrition is currently based on that population, not on women um, or different cultures or different backgrounds. So I think because of that, women have often been overlooked and female athletes have been misunderstood. And I wanted to empower them. I wanted them to empower them and make them understand that there's so much they can do if they understand their body, if they understand their hormones, if they understand their behavior and their psychology. So I guess, yeah, I just, I just find the area really interesting. And I think I want to champion women in, in a way. Um, but also I want to give people the facts around eating disorders and what they really are and why they happen and what symptoms to look out for. And it's not as simple as just giving someone more food and they'll get better. Like it isn't as simple as that. And also eating disorders are not just about body image. Like there's so much misinformation out there. And I, I guess I feel passionate about teaching people and encouraging people to, to learn. It's like, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a there's a BBC documentary that's come out today um, with a very high profile influencer being the spokesperson. And it's infuriated me because it's not taught us anything. And, and it frustrates me that we get this opportunity to create something that could be useful, that could help people who are suffering, could prevent other people from going down this path. And we don't. We just use a well-known face. And that's really frustrating, particularly when you're yeah. saying with people all day long and you're challenging the messages and the narrative that is created within them because of influential individuals who are constantly portraying a life that's not achievable for most people. Where do you think we've gone wrong kind of on a on a greater scale? I think from my perspective, I almost have the opposite issue in that I think a lot of the messaging around healthcare is 
about the obesogenic environment that we've created and you know everyone needs to lose weight and we I've had so much training about you know how to have those conversations with people that's definitely far outweighed the conversations I've had about identifying people that have disordered relationships with food um, the people that I see are more likely to be suffering with obesity and and those issues and they do need help with that but I think on a kind of more nationwide scale that's still the message that's being pumped out so it's that there's that social media pocket that's focused on aesthetics and certain body types but then public health wise I feel like it's it's all about obesity so do you have any thoughts thoughts about that oh so many um (laughs) the problem we've got with the obesity message is that we've absolutely dumbed down the science which is so depressing we've basically dumbed it down to move more eat less calories in calories out and yet when you go away and read physiological papers and studies it is incredibly clear that the human body is hardwired to want to be in an energy balance and often in a positive energy balance so we are almost biased towards obesity to a certain degree i guess um but also that if you then create too big a deficit that it actually turns on compensatory behaviors. So this message about reducing your energy intake significantly, going on very low calorie diets, which is what is often proposed to individuals who are of a very high BMI, is fundamentally setting them up to fail. And, you know, if you put them on a very low calorie diet, they may drop a little bit of weight, possibly, but then the body can't cope with that huge deficit because it in itself it sees it sees that as a threat and so starts to downregulate metabolism and so this poor individual then either has to go even lower or can't sustain what they're doing because it's not sustainable and ends up eating more and actually ends up putting more weight on so i think weirdly the public health messaging and the public health interventions have probably actually added to the obesity problem but it feels like nobody wants to hear that. They don't want to go, actually, we we messed up and we need to do something different. And, and I say that with quite authority because I've been in a room with Public Health England. I've been in a room with the Department of Health and had this same conversation and they look at me completely blankly. And this is teams made up of, you know, academics and researchers and dietitians and nutritionists who have almost turned a blind eye to the research that could actually help them. So I think that's a big problem. But I also think that obesity, a bit like eating disorders, is really misunderstood. It's often reduced down to gluttony. And while that might be the case for a few people, you still have to understand that all human behavior has a purpose. And often that purpose is protection. So if somebody has ended up with obesity, then we have to ask, well, what is the purpose of their behavior around eating? Why is it so difficult for them to stop? Is it metabolic and endocrinological, which actually we need to give them support and help with? You know, that is if it's if it's to do with that. Or is it psychological? You know, is this person trying to avoid emotions and feelings and thoughts that are really difficult for them 
And in the same way, somebody with anorexia will avoid them by restricting, somebody with obesity continues to eat because it feels like a way of avoidance and, 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 and kind of pushing down difficult emotions. So I feel like although the reports will often say obesity is multifaceted and it's a social economic problem and it's, a, you know, it, it's due to different social economic groups and, and health inequalities and poor education and all those different things. But yet when you look at the interventions, none of that is ever addressed. It's the same message of move more, eat less. You know, and the calories on menus is the perfect example of an intervention that has fundamentally got absolutely no proof that it works or no scientific basis for it being of any use to anyone because not all calories are equal. How, how, are, we, how are we actually informing and encouraging people to eat better if you're just looking at a label? I imagine that's something that probably crops up in your clinic in that those calorie labels, I imagine, aren't helping the obesity problem, at least to a significant amount, but are potentially really impacting the people that are struggling with dysfunctional relationships with food um, and probably don't want to go into a restaurant and see coloured menus with, you know, this is green, this is red, um, this is a thousand calories, this is 500. Does, does that conversation come up in, in clinic? Do you think that's affecting the people you're seeing? Do you know what's really interesting is that people, particularly people who have eating disorders, will have already researched that information. So it doesn't really change their conversation with me. They're always fearful of going into a scenario where they have no idea of how it's been made or, or you know, that there's, that's always a, a challenge for them. Where I think it's been more harmful has been in younger generation and also in individuals that perhaps were kind of borderline disordered in the sense that, they're, they were aware, but they weren't really participating. But now they're hyper aware and it's really impacted their ability to enjoy going out with their friends and relaxing and, and, and eating food in a ce celebratory manner. I think that's where it's impacted. And the other people where I think it's impacted is actually I think it's made behaviours around eating much worse because, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who are mindful of their weight for whatever reason and they now will not eat anything all day to allow themselves to have that thousand calorie pizza or whatever it is they're going to want to eat and actually that in itself sets you up to fail because from a physiological point of view you end up producing way more insulin than you need in the evening because you haven't eaten all day and then the next day you end up with completely fluctuating blood sugars and that can then lead to more sort of eating to excess type behavior. I mean, it doesn't make, it, none of it's ever made any sense to me. I've had, honestly, I've had all these arguments with Public Health England and Department of Health and it did nothing. So um, it's very, very frustrating. As a clinician, say in the NHS, what are the things that we can pick up on in terms of detecting signs and symptoms from patients that might suggest that they're in a low energy availability? So not necessarily a super competitive athlete, but just somebody who, who exercises regularly. What things should we be kind of thinking about in our consultations that might point towards a low energy availability, um, an unhealthy relationship with food or even an unhealthy relationship with exercise itself? So I think... Um... I think one of the first things to appreciate is that often people who have 
low energy availability and particularly an exercise addiction, they won't necessarily be a certain look. They won't necessarily have lost weight. They often are quite um, muscular, still quite athletic looking and will, I suppose, almost look healthy if we think about what health is portrayed like on social media. That will be the thing. Um, but they may come in and say, for example, oh, I've got um, I've got really bad gut, gut issues, you know, like really like my digestion is really poor. I feel quite bloated. I feel quite uncomfortable. And as a GP, your immediate response probably or as a medic would be, well, this person looks healthy enough and they're exercising and they've got gut issues. They've probably got IBS. In reality, it could actually be gastroparesis, which is this slow movement of food through the gut due to basically they're not being enough energy for digestion. And so if it was IBS, you'd be potentially looking at some sort of like exclusion diet in terms of like FODMAPs or something. But obviously that'd be the worst thing to do in this scenario because you would be encouraging more low energy availability. And weirdly, like I've actually had a number of clients that it was the FODMAPs diet that put them in a really bad place in terms of their relationship with food because they believed that that was going to fix them and then it didn't and actually their energy intake got less and less and less and then they ended up in a in a right pickle so that's definitely a sign is if someone comes in with gut issues do ask them a few extra questions like well how much training are you doing and do you train in the morning and do you have breakfast before you train and how do you recover like those sorts of things can be quite useful to ask if you've got a female it's definitely worth asking about menstrual cycle in terms of you know, obviously, are you on the pill? Are you not? And if they're on the pill, then that will disguise quite a lot of the symptoms. But if they're not on the pill, then like asking them about their cycle and is it normal? What's normal for them? Because if it's like always been 26 days, cool. But if it's been like 40 days and suddenly become 26 days, then that's definitely an indicator that perhaps there's not quite enough energy going in and that's why they may not be ovulating so you can obviously get anovulatory cycles where it looks like you're having a period but you're not because you're not actually ovulating um so that could be it's definitely a good thing to be investigating but also and this is a really important one for medics is if a female comes in and says she, she's not having a period the first thing to do is do blood tests so you can see what levels are going on in terms of luteinizing hormone and FSH and estrogen and progesterone and prolactin and testosterone. But remember that the numbers might not be completely flatlined. They may just be sitting almost at like a halfway point, but we don't know where this person is in their cycle. So we can't say that these are normal. So the number of times I've had clients that come into me and say, yeah, but my GP's checked my bloods and they're fine. And I'll be, well, let's have a look at them. And it's like, well, actually, how can they be fine? Because you're not having a period. So there's something wrong here. So I think that's a really important one is that we don't necessarily always need flatlined results. And even with things like thyroid function, we're not looking for sort of the outliers where they're very low levels of TSH or really high levels of TSH or really low levels of T4 and really high levels of T4. We're looking at the ones where they're kind of right at the bottom end, which would indicate that the body's working really hard to preserve energy. So probably this person isn't fueling enough, is not giving themselves enough energy to do the work it needs to do. If you get someone who's coming in with recurrent um, injuries, like constant like 
niggles with their tendons and their ligaments or they're constantly getting injured, that's a definite sign that probably they're not uh, fueling properly. Similarly, if you get somebody who's quite resistant to anemia, it's worth exploring what's going on there because, you know, low ferritin levels, low hemoglobin levels can be a sure sign there's not enough energy in the body to produce enough red blood cells and hemoglobin. And we know that there's a very strong link between a low ferritin level and higher risk of stress fractures. So that's another important one to, for medics to really be aware of and, and, and to consider. And then the other one will be mood. So again, if testosterone and estrogen are low because there's not enough energy in the body to produce them, then this will often mean that the individual will have very, very low mood, almost like depressive low mood due to these because both estrogen and testosterone help us to uptake serotonin into the brain and other neurotransmitters that help with our mood. So that's also a classic sign, you know, if someone's coming in and they're feeling very, very flat and very, very low and Again, they sound like they're doing all the right things. I go for my runs. I, I, you know, I, I eat really well. Actually, is that balance off, and is that what's causing the low mood? And obviously, we spoke about women and um, menstrual cycle, but obviously, with guys, it there can be changes to morning erectile function, especially if testosterone drops super low. So anything that when it drops below ten is probably a sign that things are. I'm not in a good way. So I think there's lots we can do. And I appreciate often, particularly GPs will only have like 10 minutes and you want to try and think about, well, how, how can I get more information from this person? And I think just thinking about a few of these questions can really help to find out where someone's at. So in terms of any exercise addiction, like, you know, even asking, you know, do you find it difficult to have rest days could be a really good question. If you have a rest day or you have an enforced rest day, how does that make you feel? You know, those sorts of things. So, Because then if they, if, they, if they can never stop, then that would be an indicator that they've got a dependency on exercise rather than it being something that's healthy. And similarly with food, like, do you feel that you have to earn your food? Do you feel that you can't eat certain foods unless you've done a certain amount of exercise? These can be, you know, they're, they're quite sort of they're not too they're not too accusational in terms of questions, but they could just be interesting and probably different to where you may have gone previously. And you mentioned right at the beginning there the kind of typical look someone might have if they have low energy availability, but obviously that's not always the case. And I was just hoping you might be able to just touch on people that present and they, they could actually be overweight but have low energy availability. Would you mind just explaining why why that can still happen? Yeah, sure. So often if someone, so there's, there's two main reasons. If someone has been overweight and they've rapidly lost weight, like they, they started at a very high BMI and they've rapidly lost weight in a very short period of time, but perhaps they're still sitting just at the top of the, the BMI range or in still in the overweight BMI range, that very rapid weight loss will put the body under stress and it kind of creates that sense of threat to the body. And so it will, you know, it will downregulate metabolism again to preserve energy. Um, but also with these individuals, you'll probably see some cognitive changes intense because of the rapid weight loss they will be very typical of anorexic cognition. But if this is what we kind of know as atypical anorexia because it's not presenting in the, in the normal, very underweight way. But also when people create this big deficit that we spoke about, especially if they are exercising 
and they're trying to reduce their energy intake at the same time. If the deficit is very high, then like we said earlier, it will set in compensatory behaviors because the body won't want to function. It can't, it can't deliver the energy for exercise and deliver the energy for biological function. And so it will fundamentally downregulate metabolism in order to provide energy for the brain and the exercise, the movement, but then everything else in the body will start to be shut down slowly, slowly. And so often when when there's a when a body is in preservation mode, it actually tends to hold on to more body fat. Um, but again, because we have this message of move more, eat less all the time, the individual will go, well, I'm, you know, I'm still eating too much and we'll try and cut back again. And that just makes the whole situation worse and worse and worse. And clinically, obviously, I, in, in my head, I see it as a spectrum where you've got an athlete that is eating enough and exercising the right amount. So they have good energy availability. And then you can slip down to have low energy availability where maybe you're exercising a bit too much and not eating enough. And then slipping further down into red S, so relative energy deficiency in sport. Is, is that right? Is it a spectrum or is there a cutoff where the maybe more clinical signs like a loss of periods where you're then firmly in the red S zone? Whereas if you, you know, you're still having your periods, you are sat in the low energy availability zone. It's a really good question. I mean, low energy availability underpins reds. So it is not reds. It underpins it. But reds is a is a phenomenon that could show up with a number of symptoms. So menstruation in female athletes or females is one of the first indicators that perhaps there's a problem within that individual but it doesn't affect everybody because some females can actually operate at a very low energy availability and still have a menstrual cycle so you have to look at the whole spectrum the whole picture um and like we said that fundamentally reds can affect your psychology it can affect your digestion it can affect your bone health it can affect your immune system it can affect your um adaptation to training it can obviously affect your hormones and your in your menstrual cycle it's not just related to energy availability it's not just related to menstrual cycle and reproductive hormones although this is what is often put out there reds is also affected fundamentally by stress in the body the most common thing in individuals that are very active will be sort of the physical stress of training and particularly the the physical stress of under eating and that just kind of like this, there's been a layer upon layer of stress. But also sometimes it can be, if you think about athletes, they tend to be a certain type of personality, um, kind of quite perfectionist and highly strong. And so they don't always know how to manage their expectations. And so there's this constant underlying anxiety around needing to push harder and do more, which then feeds that dysfunction with exercise and training load and, and maybe not having as much recovery as needed or as many sessions that are done at a lower intensity. So low energy availability doesn't necessarily mean you have REDS, but low in energy availability definitely underpins REDS. But there are many other things that can also contribute to REDS, such as high levels of stress. When we talk about eating disorders, particularly restrictive eating disorders like anorexia, it is the low energy availability that causes all the biological consequences of anorexia. But obviously anorexia is a complicated mental illness 
so I think again that's often doesn't I don't think people always understand that I think in the clinical world I think we try and separate those two pits when we're talking when we're working with people with anorexia in that we think well there's a psychology and then there's a physical but actually you kind of need to bring the two together if you're going to really help somebody overcome it because you can't really get them to feel more if they don't understand their behavior and the reasons why but also they're not going to understand the reasons why if they haven't got enough energy going in so anorexia starts off as a mental illness it is a mental illness fundamentally you know it's a complicated psychological illness which causes low energy availability that then has severe biological consequences for that individual which then makes the whole situation a lot more complicated it is quite a difficult thing to get your head around and I think especially when you bring the element of sport into it it just kind of opens up this whole whole new um well I, I, and even the words are different aren't they so you know mm. reds is not something I ever learned in medical school whereas uh so now I'm doing a, a master's in sports medicine and you know that's kind of a, a word that's used all the time especially as it gets more and more attention but when you're in an NHS clinic obviously you can have non-athletic and athletic people walking through your doors so having an awareness of this is really important I think the term red is an interesting one. I, I sometimes wonder why we why we used it. But I guess the thing to remember is that not all reds has got a psychological aspect to it. But a lot of reds is fundamentally disordered eating and eating disorders. But people don't want to be labelled, especially athletes, they don't want to be labelled. So having the term reds kind of provides a bit of protection to the athlete because if you say, oh, that athlete's got reds, we don't know the full extent of that unless you're actually working with that individual. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Just to end, there was a really interesting part of your your book that I just wanted uh, to touch on. So you, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, there's a, a real need to increase uh, research into female athlete health. Um, and actually what I wasn't aware of is kind of how or at least I hadn't thought of it before, how we should possibly fuel more specifically around menstrual cycles, for example, and how female athletes obviously have different nutritional uh, needs compared to male counterparts. So I was just wondering if you wouldn't, uh, would mind just summarising a few of the things you mentioned in your um, book. For example, when estrogen's low, we use more fat as fuel and all of those changes, which I really hadn't appreciated before. Yeah, so I think, I mean, first thing to say is that no two women are the same. So what is really important is these are generalizations that we have observed, but that's not to say it's going to be the case for everybody. What, what we know is that there are definite changes across the cycle. For some women, it's hugely significant and for other women, it's not. And that in itself tells you that it's not as simple as just the changing hormones within the menstrual cycle. You know, lifestyle and lifestyle stress will definitely impact your response to the cycle. I think that's really important to kind of start this. And the best way to know what is working for you and and how to feel your body best and, and, and think about the training around your cycle is tracking and definitely tracking for like, I would say a minimum of three months, but ideally six to 12 months to really understand your body. Um, and then you can be a bit more like, oh yeah, okay, this is what is going on for me. So I know this is what's happening for me. But what we know is that fundamentally in the follicular phase, so day one of your cycle to say around ovulation, we are definitely more stable because that is when to start with hormones are very, very low because there's not much going on in that first seven days, to be honest. Possibly by day five, six, seven, things are starting to move. So that's when FSH is rising and 
then on the back of FSH rising, LH will rise to allow for it to peak just before ovulation. So this phase is kind of when we probably are a little bit more stable, we we will use more fat for fuel. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be having carbs at all. It's actually still really important to maintain good cycle health, menstrual cycle health. You do need carbohydrate, like the, the menstrual cycle loves carbohydrate so if you want an efficient and well-working menstrual cycle you do need to eat carbohydrate throughout so it's not to say you shouldn't be eating carbohydrate but it's to say that actually you'll probably find that if you go and do more kind of longer sessions or harder sessions in this period of time um, you will be more efficient because you're using a combination of both fat and carbohydrate um, more effectively and efficiently we do know as well that in this mid follicular phase if you don't get your energy intake right it can potentially affect your production of luteinizing hormone which will then obviously affect ovulation that again is going to be different in sensitivity from individual to individual depending on your background and your history and and what's going on and then post ovulation when you're in the kind of what we call the luteal phase so day say 15 to 28 if you want to call it a 28 day cycle in the luteal phase when you're there this is where most women will struggle more in terms of their performances, particularly that very end phase. So sort of when progesterone is dominant, when that kind of is high. And again, that will be different for some women that will be on, you know, day 21. For other women, it might be day 24. And it's it's kind of, we don't know. And you wouldn't know unless you were testing every single day. And even then it would change month to month. So just understanding that in this phase, at some point, we know that, progesterone is dominant this then starts to affect our core temperature so we'll tend to have a higher core temperature which means not only will that potentially affect our sleep and then our recovery but it will also affect our exertion and our perceived exertion so when we're training we might find that like an easy pace feels quite hard because our temperature is higher so we're using more energy to kind of control our core temperature and we'll have higher sweat losses as well so again if you're training or competing and it's in in the heat as well and it's during this phase you need to be really mindful of your hydration um, and your electrolyte balance the other thing about when progesterone is dominant is that actually we do tend to have more unstable blood sugars and so we will crave more carbohydrate and we need to ensure that we we consider that but also combining that with say protein and fat can help to sort of stabilize blood sugars a lot more. I definitely notice in my cycle that this is the time where, so I always have breakfast before I run, but the timing of when I have breakfast and when I run seems to be more important in this luteal phase. So in my follicular phase, I'll have toast and coffee and it might be an hour, an hour and a half before I go running, depending on what work I've got, you know. Whereas when I'm in the luteal phase, if I leave it an hour, an hour and a half, and then I go running, I'll often find that my blood sugar really dips and I get quite shaky. So I tend to take something out with me to make sure that if I do have that little dip, then I can give myself something to to, to keep, keep my blood sugars level. And that's something that I've learned just through tracking my cycle and, and understanding what's going on. And it's a way in which you can then mitigate training session feeling really awful <laughs> fundamentally so so we know that the other thing about progesterone is that when progesterone is dominant this is more of an interesting psychological thing is that our level of how we perceive our attractiveness is much lower 
So women actually see themselves as less attractive in this phase, which again fits in with, you know, fluid retention and probably also slightly more sluggish gut health because again, progesterone and estrogen affect our gut health. Um, And you generally just do feel a bit more bloated and a bit more uncomfortable, but you're also psychologically perceiving that because of progesterone being dominant so understanding that you know it kind of just makes it easy because you go all right okay yeah it's it's you know it's day 24 this will pass it's okay and again like i mean understanding your body as a female just helps you to feel empowered it's not about stopping it's not about giving you permission to not do something it's actually about understanding what you need to do in order to still be competitive to still take part in life and you know not retreat to the sofa and not do anything. So obviously, you know, I say that and caveat that some women do have incredibly heavy and uncomfortable periods. And of course, it's absolutely fine to not train if you don't want to. But I think in the past, we've almost used it as an excuse. I remember remember being at school going, oh, I can't, I've got period pains. Um, But actually, if I'd understood my body better, maybe it wouldn't have been an excuse I would have used to, you know, not do sport, perhaps. Maybe not. But, you know, I mean, I might not have wanted to go out in the cold, wet, hockey pitch so (laughs) there was other reasons for people that um, are quite keen to learn more about their cycle and all the symptoms you mentioned in terms of tracking um so obviously it's the it's the actual menstrual bleed that they need to track so they know their their dates and things like perceived exertion i'm guessing fatigue cravings uh, anything else that you think are really important things um obviously any other symptoms that they they feel might be related but anything that you would say that's really important that you make sure that's something that you keep note of over the month sleep's quite a good one because obviously when we don't sleep we don't recover very well and also when we don't sleep it will affect our internal environment which will then inform us so you know our thoughts and our feelings are very much governed by our external internal environments so when our internal environment is a little bit off because we're tired we're hungry we're dehydrated we're stressed we're more likely to have more intrusive and irrational thoughts those symptoms can be useful some women find tracking their hrv can be quite handy so heart rate variability which is the time between the beats of your heart and that can be quite useful in some women. It's a really difficult one to measure accurately, but like a lot of sport tech has it built in or there's like, you know, your hour rings and your whoop bands, which which give you a crude value. And I'd say use it as a crude value. I wouldn't say use it as an absolute accountability that this is saying I shouldn't train today, so I'm not going to train. If you feel fine, go for it. But, you know, equally, if you're having a day where you feel quite tired and you're like, I don't know if I should train or not, and it's saying flagging up that you probably it's not the best day for you to train then that's a good time to think okay well maybe I won't today because that's suggesting that I'm at risk of injury or illness so that can be quite a useful guide for some people that's really helpful and I think um I think all those trackers they're they're really great but I think each individual has their kind of own thoughts about whether that's going to help or hinder so (laughs) definitely one to kind of have have an optional um part of your your menstrual tracking I think Um, it's so easy to get obsessional about it like I generally I don't really track my cycle as such anymore in a sense I have I have a, a Garmin which has it on the dashboard you know it'll say we're expecting your period to start now and then I'll put in the date that it's on and I'll put the date that it finishes and so it's it would constantly be telling me that we're expecting your period at this point but I don't tend to put in any data around 
personally around sleep or fatigue anymore because I kind of know my body because I did it for such a long time. And similarly with HRV, I do I do track it from time to time. Generally, when I'm if I'm going into a phase of heavy training, plus I've got a busy work schedule that's when I'm more likely to keep an eye on my HRV because that's when I've found previously that I've overloaded my system and I've ended up getting injured. So I'm a bit more mindful on on that that period. So it's not something I do necessarily all the time, but I definitely keep an eye on it because I think it can be quite informative. Once you've done it for a while, again, and you understand your numbers, then it can be quite informative to know what's going on. Great. That's that's all been uh, really, really helpful. Thank you so much for, for speaking to me. Is there any final comments you wanted to make for anyone listening, um, whether that's kind of athlete or clinicians and any final tips you have for them? I think my main message is please remember that the human body is not transactional. It's not as simple as calories in and calories out. And actually, there's so much we can't measure because there's so much going on within our body that is that is impossible to to measure and monitor. But actually, the human body has its own monitoring system. You know, that's what homeostasis is. So as an individual, as much as possible, just just try and listen. I think we've got so much external influence that we've almost forgotten how to listen to our own internal cues. Um, and it's a difficult art to, to learn. But once you've learned it and trust it, then actually your body regulates for you. And you don't have to be constantly thinking about, should I eat that? Should I not eat that? Should I train today? Should I not train today? Because you're actually much more in tune with, with what your body's telling you. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It was uh, an absolute pleasure. A huge thanks to Rini for chatting with me on this episode of the podcast. If you want to hear more from Rini, then you can find her on Instagram at r underscore McGregor, or you can visit her website, reenymcgregor.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it and give it a rating and do get in touch if there's topics or guests who you'd like to see on a future episode. If you'd like to hear more from me, then you can head to marathonmedic.com where you'll find more podcast episodes, blog posts and coaching information or you can find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic. Thanks so much for listening. 